Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode on The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today my guest is Dr. Michael Ruse. He is a philosopher of science, of science who specializes in the philosophy of biology and works on the relationship between science and religion, the creation-evolution controversy, and the demarcation problem within science. He currently teaches at Florida State University, where he is Lucille T. Werkmeister, professor and director of HPS program. He is also a very, a very prolific writer, author of books like Darwinian Revolution, Darwin and Design, and most, more recently, On Purpose. So, Dr. Roos, thank you a lot for accepting the invitation. My pleasure. Okay, good. So I guess that the first question I would ask you is, would you say that Darwinism was really an epistemological revolution that we have in science? Well, the answer is yes, I would. Um, epistemological, I think, I think I'd want to say it was more than just epistemological. It was a... Uh, <clears throat> It was revolutionary in just about every respect that one can think about. Um, I mean, if one recognizes that one is not the special creation of a good God on the sixth day, 6,000 years ago, but that we're the end product of a long, slow, rather painful process of evolution and our immediate ancestors were not today's apes, but certainly apes of some kind, I would say that that's a pretty big revolution epistemologically, morally, socially, religiously, any other way you want to think about. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, uh, in in literature and creatively, all of these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very hard to, you know, to think of, uh, well, you, you know, you think of some of the great love poetry like Shakespeare, shall I compare thee to a a summer's day, thou art more fair and lovely. Well, yes, except you're also a monkey. And, uh, you, you know, what does that make of you? You're no longer some ethereal being made in the image of God, uh, special and all of these sorts of things. You're, you know, you're along with it, along part of the animal world, along with dogs and cats and uh, uh, and mice and everything else. So, yes, the answer to your question is, it's about as big as you can get. Yes, exactly. And I guess that even from a historical, philosophical perspective, uh, Darwinian evolution uh, really did overturn a lot of ideas that were prevalent, like, for example, uh, the idea of purpose and final cause. Well, yes, <clears throat> except my experience of revolutions is that they could be revolutionary without necessarily being completely new. I mean, the whole point about revolutions so often is that there's continuity and it's rather like a what in England, English, we call a kaleidoscope, where you start off with certain pattern and you shake it and you get a different picture, but it's the same parts. And I'm always struck by the extent to which uh, 
the Darwinian revolution particularly, but I think you could probably also say the same of the Copernican revolution. Uh, I mean, the Copernican revolution was a great revolution, but Plato had already made the sun very important. So it wasn't exactly as if Copernicus was doing something which had never been thought of before. He was putting it in a very different context. And I, I would want to say the same uh, with Darwin. I mean, I'm looking at you and handsome young fellow that you are, I'm looking at you and I'm seeing those twinkly eyes and I'm seeing that those bright flashing teeth and that very masculine looking beard. Well, you know, they don't just happen. They're there for a purpose. Obviously, the uh, what do you call them in, in Portugal? Not senoritas, but, you know, I mean, the whole point is they're there in order that you can see, in order that you can smell, in order that you can chew, all of these sorts of things. And that was true before Darwin. And of course, it's true after Darwin. Now, the question is not whether you know, your eyes are for seeing, that they were for seeing before Darwin was ever thought of, and they're for seeing right now. The question is, how do we explain them? So, as I say, the revolution is not saying, oh, well, nobody's ever thought of these at all or never thought of these as having any purpose before. Of course, the whole point is we have, and so often we know the purpose. Now the question is, uh, how do we explain it if we're not going to explain it as, you know, God sat down with his drawing board and drew up a picture and said, yes, I think this looks pretty good for eyes. Let's draw in the retina like this and that sort of thing. But and more than that, that God, you know, made some bad mistakes because everything was inverted and God said, oops, made a big mistake there. Well, I better find some way of fixing it because the Darwinian says it, it's it's not a mistake in that sort of way. It, that's how it evolved, and nature had to get around it, and it did. So, as I say, revolution, yes. But I always like to say about Darwin himself, <clears throat> he was a great revolutionary, but he was not a rebel. I mean, he was a very comfortable uh, Englishman who had absolutely no doubts whatsoever that the English were far superior to anybody on the continent. And... Uh, that you know that went unchanged. The question is, how did he want to set about explaining this? And often, of course, his explanations undermined what he believed. I mean, clearly Darwin thought that the English were superior to the, the Portuguese, let alone the French and Germans. Uh, but now, of course, we look at it and say, well, we see why Darwin was arguing that, and we agree with Darwin's arguments, but maybe the conclusion isn't quite so straightforward, and that, in fact, we can see that alternative strategies might be just as good, and that, let's say, for instance, somebody with a dark skin might be just as well adapted to the kind of environment they live in, as opposed to, say, somebody like you with a light skin who's just as well adapted uh, to the environment you live in. So whereas somebody like Darwin might have gone in and said, oh, well, and this proves the superiority of white skin over black skin, we want to say, yes, Darwin, we accept your explanation, but we don't necessarily accept your conclusion, and that your own explanation maybe undermined some of those very 19th century chauvinist views that you had not only about races, but particularly about women. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. But about the concept of purpose, because I guess that it is very important to understand, um, I guess, uh, how it was extricated from the biological process 
after Darwinian evolution because I guess that there are many people that when they think about evolution they associate it with some sort of uh, progress let's say that that is that it is sort of a theological process that he, that it improves over time because some people look at us as humans as homo sapiens as the pinnacle of evolution or something like that but uh, i i want to ask you do you think that even if evolution uh, by itself as a pro as a process doesn't have any purpose do you would you say that it imbued uh, certain beings at least with purpose so for example because us as humans and this is just to give one example because probably other animals also have this we cognitively use uh, purpose to create things for example we create new tools that serve certain purposes well I think that, that, I mean I think you're asking a question which goes right to the heart of science uh, the whole point about science is it's not just give us the facts give us a description with with science it's a combination and I mean I don't think one has to be an out and out Kantian to agree with this but it's a, certainly a combination of the the world that we perceive and the world that we try to make sense of now, pretty clearly, if we humans are going to try to make sense of the world, we're going to use the tropes and metaphors and analogies that, that we use in everyday, everyday life. I mean, if we were, for instance, uh, let's say codfish, presumably we think of the world in different perspectives. But we're humans. Uh, we are social beings. We are creative beings. I mean, the way that humans succeed in this world is, I mean, if you think about it, we're, you know, we're not, we're pretty thin skinned. We're not very good at, I mean, if you put us out in the outside on our own, start naked on our own, we wouldn't go do very well. Whereas I suspect, let's say a cat might do quite well indeed. But why is it that we're so successful? Well, because we're very good at, at not only socializing and passing on ideas, but also with doing things with the world and being creative and, and making things and, and that sort of thing. So uh, clearly, um, we humans live in a world where of, of creation, of design. So I don't think it's at all surprising Therefore, that when we try to understand the world, we would use metaphors like design uh, or, or progress that we see that we've managed to, you know, improve things that, you know, medical care or something like that or or communications. I mean, we couldn't have done this 50 years ago, for instance. And so I think it's natural to to take those human items, as it were, and try to understand the world in terms of these. I mean, I mean, the simple fact is, if we don't do it that way, then what do we do? What do we do? So the point is, now, sometimes this works very well. 
And uh, sometimes, for instance, looking at things for purpose makes a lot of sense. Although, as somebody like the late Stephen Jay Gould used to say, caveat emptor, that yes, purpose, but don't necessarily think that every last thing has a purpose. I mean, look at you. There you are, a handsome young man with a beard, and all the girls are attracted and they say, oh my goodness, look at Ricardo. Boy, hasn't he got a beard? I'd love to have his babies. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we go on like that. But Stephen Jay Gould would say, but maybe there's no purpose. The, the fact is, you have a beard, and girls don't have beards because that's the side effects of the hormones that led to you having a penis and them having a vagina. Having a penis is obviously does have a purpose and it is essential. But having a beard may be just a side effect of the hormones necessary to create penises. And beards are, you know, they just are. So, uh, as I say, I, I, I'm not sure that Gould is right about this. I mean, I think one could obviously say a, a lot of things about beards and sexual selection and all of those sorts of things. But uh, the point is, we're going to think in terms <clears throat> of things like purpose, because if we don't, then what do we do? Now, the interesting thing is, uh, what we found is that thinking in terms of purpose when it comes to inanimate objects, let us say, like the moon, isn't terribly helpful. I mean, back, you know, in the old days, they would certainly have thought in terms of purpose. I mean, the moon exists to light the way home for drunken philosophers at the end of a long day. <laughs> but now we'd say, well, that's a joke. <laughs> Maybe drunken philosophers do use the moon, but the moon doesn't exist. The moon what we'd be inclined to say now is the moon just is. The moon doesn't have a purpose. And of course, at another level, terrible as it is, we'd want to say, well, you know, organisms just are. That's all there is to it. I mean, you know, that what did Camus say? Life is absurd and there is no purpose. But at the same time, I think what we want to say is, yes, but at another level, thinking in terms of purpose about humans can be, uh, and, and other organisms can be very, very valuable. And it can serve a great, you know, a, a very important role. And obviously, I mean, if I ask what's that thing sticking out on the front of your face, I mean, it's a nose. What's its purpose? Well, it's order. It's one of the senses. What's the purpose of having the senses? So you can find your way around the world, so you can manipulate it, so you can use it, uh, and all of these things. So, yes, I mean, so, but as I say, without being out now pragmatist, I do see science very much as a sort of a, a Kantian interplay between the given and the interpreted, as it were. Mm -hmm. But it's I don't... I don't see that as particularly contentious. I don't see that as, you know, something which is very radical, particularly, you know, 200 years after Kant. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and co could you please give us a brief overview about uh, how 
let's say, the modern synthesis of evolution works? Because I guess that since Darwin and most people associate natural evolution, uh, natural selection with Darwin, of course, because he was one of the originators of the idea and he published on the origin of species uh, 160 years ago or something like that. But since Darwin, uh, it, uh, the concept and what we include in the process of evolution uh, as itself evolved quite a lot, correct? Yeah. Yes, well, as I see it, I mean, the important thing about Darwin's theory, and I would include natural selection right in this, evolution through natural selection, which, of course, is what Darwin always did. Um, I would say that this is... I mean, in a, if I say it's a metaphysical picture, uh, that's in no sense to deny that it's a scientific picture. But it certainly functions as a kind of overall metaphysical picture, rather as the Christian creationism picture functions. I mean, if you asked a Christian, uh, let's say back in the medieval times, how do you explain the world? They'd have said, well, it's the creation of a good God who who necessarily exists, but who created out of love, who created the world, who created the world as a habitat for organisms, for animals and plants, who created uh, animals right up to humans, but who then created humans who are in some sense distinctively special because they uniquely are made in the image of God. And of course, then Christians want to add on things like the fall and why we're not perfect now and all sorts of issues like that. But I mean, that's basically what you've got with the Christian overall picture. Now, what I see Darwin as doing, and I do want to say, I don't see Darwin necessarily as denying God or even the Christian God, but I do see Darwin as offering a naturalistic picture to rival that supernatural picture of, of Christianity. That what Darwin is saying that, you know, at some point the world exists. I mean, Darwin, I don't think is talking about whether or not there was eternal existence or whether there was anything. Be I mean, Darwin didn't even know about the Big Bang, but I don't think today's Darwinians would say, well, everything depends on whether or not there was something before the Big Bang or anything like that. I mean, you know, that's not part of the story. But what they are saying is for four, four and a half billion years ago, you'd got this planet which started to cool down. And then at some point, life appeared on it, whether life was brought from elsewhere or, as I think most would want to say, life started. I mean, it's not spontaneous generation in the sense of now you've got nothing and now you've got worms, but that at, at some gradual level, the, the complex molecules, the DNA molecules and the RNA, nowadays, of course, they think that RNA was before DNA, uh, but that these complex molecules started to appear and self-replicate. And then over the course of three billion years, evolution did develop. I mean, it, and obviously, if you want to use words like progress, it's, it's difficult not to, isn't it? Because cl clearly, in any sense of talking about complexity or anything like that, obviously, you've got some kind of progress going on. I mean, that's just, you know, I mean, that's just silly to say that the 
eukaryotic cell is not at some level not only more complex than the uh, than the simple prokaryotic cell, but that it's a lot more powerful and it can do things that pro that eukaryotes can do things that prokaryotes can't. So. And then obviously over the years, you've got the development of, of sophisticated plants and at the same time flowering plants and these sorts of things. And at the same time, you had the, the development, and let's be honest about it, of ever more sophisticated uh, uh, organ animals. I mean, animals that can live on land, animals that can fly, animals that can return to the water and live in the water, all of these things. And I mean, clearly with this, we get the re related uh, development of intelligence. And uh, I don't think any evolutionist today would be like Descartes and say animals don't think or animals don't have consciousness. I think any evolutionist today would say, well, of course they do. It may not be the level of consciousness that we have, but anybody who's had a dog, for instance, knows full well that they're not just a falling stone and that dogs at various levels can show emotions they can you know perfectly well when they know perfectly well when they've done something they shouldn't have done or they perfectly well you know when they're pleased or when they're happy to see you or, or when they're feeling a bit depressed all of these sorts of things when they're in pain so clearly we we, we go all the way from there up to humans so Obviously, what Darwinism wants to say is that the theory of evolution through natural selection is tremendously powerful because as the Christian story of creation gives us a story which explains all sorts of different things. So likewise, one's going to have the story of Darwinism, which is also going to explain things. Now, I don't want to speak for the creationists, but if you ask them, say, things certainly about the cruder, you know, how do you explain the distribution of animals and plants on the Galapagos or, or let's say the Azores to, you know, to get close to home for you? Uh, they Presumably a creationist would start talking in terms of Noah's flood and things like this. And of course, these days they talk in terms of kinds and they might well say, well, you know, certain kinds ended up in Portugal and then they went off to the Azores. And, you know, of course, creationists today would even say they might have evolved when they got to the Azores or something like that, although much faster than, than evolutionists think. So you've got these rival pictures, whereas, of course, Darwinians want to say, well, if you look at the flora and fauna of the Azores, why are they? Why is it a hell of a lot more like Portugal than it is, let's say, than like Bolivia or let's say like Ecuador? Why are the plants and animals of the Azores like Portugal? And why are the plants and animals of uh, the Galapagos like Ecuador, and why not the other way around? So, of course, the Darwinian wants to explain these in terms of natural, you know, geographical distributions. And Darwin has a lot of discussion about how plants or seeds can do long, you know, trips across the ocean when they're embedded in driftwood. And you know, he ran experiments to show that and all of these sorts of things. So, uh, I would want to say that what we've got today is very much a sort of functioning paradigm, uh, to use uh, Thomas Kuhn's sense. Of course, I think what's interesting today, as opposed to Darwin, is that we're aware that 
natural selection can work much more quickly than Darwin thought. I think Darwin never really thought, for instance, that we would see natural selection in our lifetime or that it was possible to do that sort of thing. Whereas now, of course, uh, evolutionists would say, yes, I mean, let's take something like lactose intolerance. Very few Chinese, for instance, I mean, if you've had a Chinese student and you offer them a milkshake, they'll probably say, no, no, I can't digest it. Whereas if you go to Ireland, for instance, and offer an Irishman a milkshake, he would just drink it without thinking about it. Now, why is that? Because the Irish have got genes for lactose tolerance and the, and the, and the Chinese don't. Now, we know now that lactose tolerance, of course, is a very good adaptation. It means that you can take advantage of animal milks and uh, dairy farming makes sense. Whereas, it was, you know, it basically doesn't for the Chinese. I mean, uh, they might grow animals for meat, but growing them for, for milk is, is pointless because they can't digest it, at least not as adults. So we know now that, in fact, lactose tolerance is something which followed uh, the development of modern agriculture, which so we're, look, we're talking in terms of the last 10,000 years. So we know that something like lactose tolerance is something that evolved very rapidly, maybe in two or three thousand years, because there was such an advantage. All the little lopuses who could drink milk did so much better than all the little haifongs who couldn't drink milk. And so in the next generation, there's half a dozen little lopuses and maybe only one haifong, and, and, and this is how it goes. And so consequently, Portugal is full of lopuses and haifongs don't exist. Whereas if you go to China, lopuses you know, don't do very well. And you know they got to Macau, but not much more than that. And uh, the Chinese are doing very well. So it's all very much a bit of ghost. This, again, impinges on notions of progress. So you, as it were, you come back, you might enter with all these views about progress. But as the theory develops, you realize that you've got to be a great deal more cautious about talking about things like this. And that being Portuguese is not necessarily in itself better than being Chinese. It's different strokes for different folks. And that maybe living in Portugal, it's better off overall to be Portuguese rather than Chinese. Now, that is not an argument against, uh, against immigrants, because obviously, one, I mean, Chinese people live very comfortably in North America and they, you know, they don't necessarily eat the same things that we do. But then, of course, we, you know, there's a lot of overlap. And we all, you know, I, for instance, love to eat sushi. And by and large, I'm not, I mean, there is sometimes some cream cheese in sushi. But by and large, it's, or it's not something where lactose tolerance is a major issue. Uh, so, as I say, I think there's all of these sorts of factors uh, come in. So what I'd want to I mean, Theodosius Dubshansky used to say nothing makes sense in the, except in the light of evolution. I'm inclined to broaden it and say nothing makes sense, period, except in the light of evolution. I think if I might go on for a minute, I think what is so interesting 
is the extent to which my fellow philosophers, Anglophone philosophers, and not just Ang, have had so much difficulty accepting this. You, I like to think of philosophers as intelligent people at the cutting edge of, of you know, of thought. But it turns out that an awful lot of philosophers are really pretty pre-Darwinian. They like the idea of humans being special. And, you know, their whole philosophy, whether it was Plato or Aristotle or Descartes or, I mean, Descartes particularly, or Kant, I mean, all of their philosophy has been predicated on a good Christian belief. We may not be in the, made in the image of God, although a lot of them think so, but we are as if we were made in the image of God. We humans uniquely are special. We're rational, we're blo this, we're that, we're the other, and we've escaped our animal origins, if indeed we ever had them. And I think it's really fascinating today is how many eminent philosophers find it very difficult to accept the Darwinian revolution. Oh, yes, they'd say we accept evolution, although often they, they're not very keen on Darwinism, but they certainly don't want to introduce it into their philosophy. Mm -hmm. Very well. And at a certain point there, you referred to something that I guess we can call nowadays a culture gene coevolution or dual inheritance theory when you refer to lactose in, uh, tolerance or intolerance. Uh, I guess it depends on yes, what exactly yes. we're talking about. So, so what I want to ask you is that nowadays, apart from a purely genetic evolution, because at a certain point in our evolutionary history, we gathered all the cognitive tools that we needed in order to create yeah. culture and accumulate it over time, then we also have to consider the effects that cultural evolution yes, might, I, might I, have. I, I, you know, at one level, I want to say, I don't find gene culture evolution a particularly troublesome notion. I mean, it's very complex or, or a particularly threatening notion. I mean, it seems to me obvious that humans have developed culture. A culture is a very powerful adaptation. I don't see any reason why necessarily that means that everything we do all of the time necessarily has to be tied into, into evolution. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, once again, I look at you, and uh, I mean, obviously, you know, the way that you're combing your hair or the fact that you're wearing an open neck T-shirt rather than a tie. Let's take that. When I grew up, everybody wore ties, uh, and most people wore hats. I don't know when you last wore a hat. I mean, I, I put on something when it's cold, uh, you know, a toque or something. But normally I would never dream of putting on a hat. And as for wearing a tie, I think I've got one. Uh, but, you know, so but I don't think necessarily that that has a great deal to do with the genes or anything like that. So uh, I do think that, it, you know, I think an awful lot. What I think is interesting is the extent to which nevertheless, as Ed Wilson used to say, uh, the string tugs back that even when you think that you're farthest from the genes, they have a nasty way of, of coming back. Let's take the whole contentious issue of feminism. Now, I mean, at one level, one has to have an awful lot of empathy for, for feminists because there's no question that Darwin, I mean, women have been put down unnecessarily. When I started university, 
women were certainly less than one in three. Now, I expect it's the same in Portugal, certainly with undergraduates. You know perfectly well, women are usually two in three. I mean, the problem at universities now is not women, it's men. Why the hell aren't men at university? What the hell are they going to do with the rest of their lives? Are they just going to sweep roads while their wives are school teachers and, and, and doctors and all of these things? So, as you, as you know, clearly an awful lot of this was just social pressure. On the other hand, I think it's stupid, really stupid, to think that that means that culture is all important when it comes to men, male-female differences. I mean, I think we're finding, for instance, and I'm sure you know, you've got friends or, or whatever, you know women who hit their 30s and they're completely independent and all of that, and then they get 32, 33, and suddenly they're looking for, for mates because they want to have kids. Now, you know, men can put it off until their 40s because, you know, I mean, I, I started a second family when I was 46 and went on to 52 and only stopped then because I, I was getting worn out. My wife would have been, who was much younger, would have been happy to keep going. But the point is I could do that. Whereas my first wife, by the time I was having my second family, my first wife was into a menopause. So, you know, although she remarried, there was no more kids coming her way. Now, the point I'm making is, I mean, I've got a graduate student right here at the moment who's courting a girlfriend who's 36, who's, you know, for 15 years has had a succession of boyfriends, but now is very serious because she wants a family. So what I'm saying is, it seems to me, perfectly natural. I, I mean, it, obviously, at one level, it's cultural. But at another level, it's obviously biological. She's a human being. She wants to have a family. She's not just a human being. She's a female human being. Her biology not only puts certain constraints on her, but her biology also, thanks to her hormones, fills her with certain desires and issues and these sorts of things. I mean, yeah, is it more important for women to have children than for men? I, I'm not sure. I mean, I love having kids, but if somebody were able to show me, you know, there's real evidence to suggest that, I wouldn't find it surprising or in any sense threatening. I mean, I wouldn't say that that makes women inferior or anything like that. I mean, frankly, in many respects, if I were injured in a hospital, I'd much sooner have a female nurse. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying... I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't, you know, a, a, a nice young gay nurse or something wouldn't be fine, but you know what I mean. So what I'm saying is I, I think that often the, the biology culture interface is a lot more complex than our ideologies will let us believe. And I, I would even go so far as to say I don't necessarily find that necessarily at the at the risk of sounding, getting myself into a lot of hot water, of saying that maybe in some respects men are better suited for STEM things than, than women. I mean, I mean, you've got to be careful about this. It's stupid. I mean, we all know women who are very good engineers, who are really good mathematicians, just as we all know men who are very good uh, at writing, at, 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 at doing literary things. I mean, I, I mean, in many respects, I would say I've got much more of a feminine side 
when it comes to intellectual things than I do a masculine side. I don't think it's all one and not the other, but there's no question but that when I'm writing, I feel that I have a really good sensitivity about human nature, which at some level one, you know, for better or for worse, often, you know, says to women, well, they're the ones who really understand, you know, how people are feeling or something like that. Men are so concerned. And I've often felt that one of my real strengths is that I, I do have a good sense of what it might have been like to be, let's say, Alfred Russell Wallace or even Darwin uh, in a way that, that, that is very important. Now, is this masculine, is this feminine? I don't really care that much. Whereas there's no question, I, you know, I wasn't bad at mathematics and these things, but I certainly don't have that male urge to go out into nature or to build bridges or something like that. I mean, which we tend to associate with Isambard Kingdom Brunel or something like that. So clearly it's, it's, it's a lot more complex than that. But at the same time, anybody who's done any biology whatsoever knows that simply to say, well, it's all culture and biology has nothing to do with it. You know, they're wrong. You, if there's anything you can say, to start with, they're wrong. I mean, I look at you and I've never seen such a melange of, on the one hand, of culture. You speak European languages, for instance. You dress like a European. You comb your hair in a 20th century way. These sorts of things. You dress like somebody in the 21st century rather than somebody in the middle of the 20th century. So at one level, it's so clearly cultural. But at another level, look at you. You're a walking selfish gene. I mean, all you want to do is walk down the road and say, I'm Ricardo Lopez and I've got big testicles, <laughs> you know, have my babies. <laughs> Sorry, Ricardo, you're probably gay. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, it's very nice to say this about me, but it doesn't apply. But anyhow. <laughs> No, 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 do, do not worry about that at all. <laughs> but, but since you probably, for... you, you've got to tell me you're on your fourth wife now and have 15 children. <laughs> no, let, let's not get into my personal life here. But anyway, since you referred to the selfish gene when you were uh, finishing your exposition, let's say, about human nature and human behavior and, mas and the masculine and the feminine and things like that. So uh, I guess that nowadays still we have this issue about what is the proper unit of selection that we should consider to be the target of natural selection. Because there are people who talk about the gene itself, there are people who talk about the individual, the kin, there are even people that talk about the group and about group right, selection. Right. So what do you think? That's that? a very interesting question, particularly since, as you may know, the English female philosopher Mary Midgley died about 10 days ago. And Mary Midgley was somebody who hated the selfish gene and hated everything that Dawkins said and was very much into group selection and Gaia and a group thing like that. And there's no question that particularly amongst philosophers, there tends to be a hatred of selfish genes and a feeling that we've, that we've got to be much more holistic 
and Gaia-like, you know, you don't understand when I take Gaia, you know, the world as an organism and these sorts of things. Well, you know, I hate to point out that the biggest holists of the 20th century were the National Socialists, you know, I mean, Ein Falk, you know, Ein Reich, Ein Führer, you can't get much more holistic than that. So I've always been very dubious about holism. I mean, I'm not against holism, but I don't automatically see holism good, reductionism bad, because I think it's the story is a lot more complex than that. The, the fact is, I think that purely at the scientific level, there's an awful lot to be said for selfish genes. Now, I mean, it's a metaphor. And although even Dawkins, perhaps especially Dawkins, tends to think that selfish genes mean selfish human beings, it just doesn't. It simply doesn't. It's a metaphor which says that, by and large, the, the smaller units are going to win out over the bigger units because they work more quickly, more effectively, more at the coalface. That by the, yes, there can well be big advantages for group cooperation. The trouble is, by the time you get to group cooperation, individual selfishness has, has won out. I mean, goodness, don't we see this in America at the moment? I mean, we know that there's global warming. We know that America should, as a whole, get together and do something about it, that they should cut down on fuel use, artificial fuel use, that they should get into they should get into sunshine. I mean, I live in Florida, for Christ's sakes, the sunshine state, and we don't have any solar panels anywhere. I mean, we know that we should be doing this, but we see that what's happening is the selfish items of people like Trump and his acolytes in Congress, like Mitch McConnell, are all going for the immediate payoff what, how can we make money? How can we dig out the coal or the fuel and sell it and make money now? And the trouble is, selfishness tends to trump, if I could use such a word, and altruism. So, I, I mean, the point is, I don't see this as an ideological thing. I see this basically about as close to a scientific fact as you can get. And I think, by and large, almost every practicing evolutionary biologist would agree with me that in fact selfishness at that level understanding that we're not talking about human selfishness but that individual selection really does trump group selection now it doesn't mean that on occasion group selection can't work and it certainly doesn't mean individual selfishness because I mean, to, to start with reciprocal altruism, you scratch my back and I scratch yours, makes perfectly good sense. I mean, look, why am I, you know, taking time out to talk to you right now, a total stranger? Is it because I'm Jesus Christ on earth? No, it's because that's the way. No, I'm a senior academic and that's the way that senior academics work. When a junior academic comes and says do something for me by and large I say of course I will because people did that for me earlier but of course Ricardo 
I expect in 20 or 30 years time, when you're, you know, professor of the, you know, chancellor of the whole of Lisbon University or something, and some little squirt from Tallahassee comes along and says, Herr Doctor, Professor, you know, Holiness, Your Holiness, Lopez, would you mind if I did an interview with you? You're going to say, well, it'll be a bit tight, but I can do it on Friday morning if you'd like to do that. And you do exactly what I'm doing. Again, not because maybe you are Jesus Christ. I mean, you look a little bit like him. Uh, but, uh, you know, you need the bed sheets and everything like that. But uh, no, I mean, it's because that's the way that humans work. And of course, the point is, Ricardo, we work very well because of that. I mean, we work. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? That you're not. I mean, we know people who are selfish. And we say, yes, well, there's always going to be people like that. But by and large, we all get on so much better if we're prepared to give a hand. We know perfectly well that if we're prepared to do our bit and not cheat too badly on our taxes, but do do these sorts of things, we know not only will we be biology has made us this way, but we know that our society will work better and it means that we will do better and those 15 children and four wives that you've got will also do better. So, you know, it, it pays off, doesn't it? Wife number three doesn't come to you and say, oh, Ricardo, Ricardo, I just can't manage. Wife come to, number three will come and say, do you know, there was this awfully nice person who was really decent to me and, you know, if you could ever do them a favour, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm not used to talking to people with four wives and 15 children. <laughs> You're already inventing completely my personal history. Well, <laughs> you're being very private about it, so I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess that <laughs> I prefer sticking to the intellectual conversation instead of... Yeah, I'm getting about... to think you're one of those Muslims which was left over from the invasion of Iberia way back when, but go on. <laughs> oh, the, the Moors that, that... That's right, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. That, that, that the yeah, first you, are, you, have, you, are, you have a bit of an Islam look about you. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. I, I don't know anything about my ancestry, <laughs> my genetic ancestry, so I, I don't know what to say about that. Okay, so, but, but now a very specific thing that I would like to address with you today, that is the concept of species. Because, I mean, uh, nowadays, particularly since we already know that, for example, there are horizontal transmission of genes sometimes between species and even, for, for example, species that are part of different realms, for example, viruses that insert, for some reason or another, uh, genetic material into cells that are part of the germline, uh, and then that genetic material then is becomes part, let's say, of that species that was infected. So, uh, I mean, what can we say about the concept of species nowadays? And are you worried then about improving species through gene manipulation? Is that what you're thinking about? Is this the end point of your discussion or what? Uh, no, I'm just asking uh, perhaps 
um, how is the concept of species defined nowadays? Well, I think it, you know, I, I don't know that it's defined really very much other than it used to be. I mean, by and large, what people want to say is that species are, you know, genetically uh, intra-reproducing groups, which are, you know, inter uh, inter non-reproducing and, and non-fertile. So we, we'd want to say that humans are a species, a, a species separate, let's say, from chimpanzees, because, you know, despite all the science fiction, humans and chimpanzees cannot and by and large do not want to interbreed, whereas, as we know, pretty much all humans can can uh, can, can indeed interbreed. And if we took you off to, uh, you know, in search of that fifth wife and we took you off to a Polynesian island or something like that, that by and large we'd expect that you would be able to interbreed when you found yourself there, or if we took you down to Terra del Fuego or whatever it is. I mean, you know, if we took you on a, a on a breeding trip, which you know, from what I gather from your private life, you'd really enjoy, uh, and we took you to ten different places. I mean, you know, by and large. There's no reason why they shouldn't be ten, you know, little lopuses uh, spread. Or is it what's the plural of lopus? Lopi uh, uh, spread around the world. So the point of, point is that we are, uh, you know, species. Now we know perfectly well that this doesn't always work. That there are obviously when there's species in the making, you're going to find borderline cases. And we know that particularly in plants, we get a lot of issues to do with hybridism and that sort of thing. But again, any Darwinian would tell you, well, I would be surprised if there weren't. And particularly if you're a Darwinian, you're going to expect borderline cases. Or uh, there's no question that maybe when you get down to micro levels, uh, interbreeding isn't necessarily the best thing that one would do it by various morphological features or just simply that they don't. But uh, as I say, I don't find any of that particularly uh, troublesome. Of course, the big issue is sort of within the species and to what extent there is variation. And as you know, particularly after the Second World War, with all the racism, you know, of the of the National Socialists, there was, you know, with people like Ashley Montague, were arguing very strongly against racial notions and wanting to say, basically, there's no such thing as race, there's no such thing as subspecies in humans. And of course, people like Richard Lewinton said there's far more variation within a population like, say, the Portuguese than there is, say, between the Portuguese and, where should we say, uh, some place where the Portuguese didn't go, out of Mongolia or something like that. And, of course, now we know that that's way exaggerated, that although it would be nobody wants to talk, you know, too bluntly in terms of subspecies, there clearly are certain levels terms which, if it weren't humans, we would use subspecies sort of languages, let's say Scandinavians and people from the Congo or something like that. But more than that, of course, we also know that there's an awful lot of evidence of related genetic differences between populations. And some of the studies that they've done across the world have been able to show that there are, in fact, you know, fairly significant, as I say, an identifiable uh, genetic differences. And of course, now, of course, we're recognizing that knowing this is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, for instance, I live in Florida, where there's a lot of black people. And we know that black people 
are much more prone to uh, to um, uh, prostate cancer than white people. And when I see in the paper, you'll often, sometimes you'll see our local urologists putting out a call for men to go and have prostate screening. And one of the things they always say is that this is particularly important for African-Americans. Now, are they being racially biased in saying this? Or are they being good doctors in saying this? Surely all of us would want to say they're being good doctors in saying this because they know that the chances of a, an African-American developing prostate cancer, or let's say two to one over white people. So they've got a moral obligation to say this and not to take note of things like this is just stupid. So as I say, I think we're now recognizing that racial things and medicine are a lot more complex and that we, we have to be a great deal more subtle and careful in dealing with these things. And I would hope to see, you know, a lot of the talk about at educational levels, you know, a lot more serious discussion about male, female abilities, or maybe even, you know, I mean, everybody says, as soon as you start asking about black, white abilities, you know, you're making, you know, Negroes are fond of rhythm and that sort of thing. And of course, the trouble is, there's an awful lot of that. But and maybe maybe this is not a time that we can do it. But at the same time, you know, the thing is, we're already into this. You know, I mean, certainly in North America, if a white girl came home and said to her parents, I'm dating a black man, the parents would say, oh, dear God, don't tell anybody. But if she came home and said, I'm dating a, a Chinese their first thoughts would be, let's get the grandchildren down for Harvard as soon as we can. Because everybody thinks that the Chinese are brighter than, than, than Caucasians, you know. So you know how it works. So it's going on, whether you like it or not. Now, I mean, of course, there are other issues like, you know, with new gene techniques, can we make for superhumans? I mean, by and large, I think that's pie in the sky. I mean, I think much more important, and I think most people would agree, is can we make for you know, people who are not handicapped and anybody who says, oh, well, we shouldn't do these sorts of things because you're going to be prejudiced against Down syndrome children. I just think they're wrong. I think anybody who says deliberately, I want to have a Down syndrome child rather than a normal child is sick. I mean, they're sick. I mean, of course, we the first I mean, any parent, if you say, well, I'm having a baby and you say, is it a boy or is it a girl? The first thing any parent is going to say, it's much more important for me that they be healthy rather than I don't mind if I have a boy or a girl. And I expect of your 15 children, you felt exactly the same way. And you said to your wives, well, I, you know, we've already got eight boys. It maybe would be nice to have a girl. But frankly, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, it's much more important for for us to have a healthy baby rather than than a sick one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and now that you touched upon the concept of race, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I mean, even nowadays it is very controversial, and some people say that race is completely the result. It's completely a social construct. Let's say. Yeah. But I mean, if we follow 
the principles of natural evolution and the fact that different human populations, that is, different populations of our species, developed in different environments like, let's say, for example, Africans, people from North, uh, Northern Europe, uh, Native Americans and other populations like those. Uh, it, it, I mean, it follows logically that if they were exposed to different environmental pressures and they had different resources at hand to solve the same problems of uh, survival and reproduction, uh, then, I, I mean, it's more or less obvious that at least to a certain degree they would have uh, different genetic pools, at least, right? Yeah, I think I, I think that's absolutely. I mean, absolutely right. And I mean, of course, we're we're grappling with these things, aren't we? And of course, the thing is, so often as happens, technology seems to out you know outspeed our social abilities to deal with things. I mean, obviously, we see this with something like global warming, don't we? That our technological abilities to drive around and to fly and or, all of these things are clearly outstripping our emotional abilities to deal with some of the awful consequences. I mean, if you look at it, the consequences of global warming are horrific. Not for me, but your 15 children are certainly going to suffer you know, with what's going on. I mean, really, I mean, I'm 78, so it isn't going to make a lot of difference to me. But all those little lopuses or low pie or whatever we call them, you know, in, in, in 2040, 2050, I mean, it's going to be awful. I mean, when Lisbon is swamped by, you know, the sea and everything like that, and uh, and everybody from the Azores comes dashing over to the mainland because the Azores don't exist anymore. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it's just awful. So, and I, it's the same with this whole gene thing and the ability to manipulate genes and, and those sorts of things. I mean, clearly at one level, it's wonderful. I mean, if people can you know, no longer have Down syndrome or, you know, some of these awful psychological things that people uh, suffer from, you know, that you that you know that you're Huntington's career, for instance, you grow, you're perfectly normal. And then, well, or muscular dystrophy. I mean, you know, you've got a, a child who's five, who's running around happily. By 10, they're getting tired. By 15, they're in a wheelchair. And 30, they're dead after, you know, awful. So if, you know, we can do something at the genetic level, goodness gracious, I'm in favor of it. Although, of course, part of the difficulty is we spend all our money on this individual thing and we forget the extent to which kids in Africa are starving every day because they're not getting a proper breakfast. Uh, you know, whereas it would, of course, the trouble is it's a hell of a lot more fun to, uh, to work on genetic, you know, drifting or whatever genetic, you know, curing or whatever it is, than to prepare, you know, fixed meals for kids in the Congo, and it's it's much more interesting and exciting. And I mean, this is the human condition, isn't it? Balancing the two. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And and it's interesting that you're now talking a, a little bit about 
genetic engineering because I wanted to ask you, isn't it also the case that because we have many times pleiotropic effects, that is the same gene uh, affecting different phenotypic traits, and also traits that are the result of several genes, that, that is, they are polygenic. Uh, isn't it a bit difficult to pin down the several phenotypic traits to one gene or, or even a set of genes? And if we were going to alter those genes, then, I mean, it could be we could very easily be creating side effects that would be worse than the problem we were trying to solve well, of course this is always the problem isn't it i mean it's like cars i mean when cars were it's hard to imagine but when automobiles were introduced people said what a wonderful health thing this is no longer do we have the streets covered in horse droppings Remember, in Victorian Britain, or I'm sure in Victorian uh, Lisbon, it was just awful to go outside the front door. I mean, it was shit like this, you know, everywhere. And as soon as cars came along, cars don't drop turds in the middle of the street. And so consequently, everybody said, cars are wonderful. There's such a hygiene thing that no longer do we have this. And of course, at one level, that's true. But now, of course, it's got to the point where the side effects from cars are automobiles is horrendous. And that, you know, I've just been through Hurricane Michael last week. I mean, you know, terrible. I mean, if you go outside, there are trees down all, all around Tallahassee. Uh, so it, it's just awful. Uh, but, you know, our, uh, what's so even more awful is our inability to do anything about it. I mean, I mean, when I say inability, clearly we can do things about it, but we don't. We just don't. And uh, as I say, far from just don't do it, if anything, we're, we're turn the other way and racing flat out. I mean, to have somebody like Trump as president is just about as, as criminally stupid as it's possible to have. I mean, you know, the man is literally saying, you know, I don't give a damn about global warming. All I want is to increase the amount of coal which is dug out. I want to increase the number of, you know, number of cars that are produced. I want all of these things. And so, yeah, yeah, you're right. But as I say, you know, at one level, it depresses me. But at another level, as I say, it, I won't say it's not my problem, but it certainly is. It's much more your problem and your children's problem than it is mine. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And now let's change a little bit the subject and talk about <laughs> the interplay or the relationship or whatever word you want to use between science and religion. And I want to ask you, uh, do you think that nowadays uh, theologists could still uh, have some space in biology, perhaps some underexplored corners, uh, uh, underexplored by science, of course, that they could use to try to make still a case for a natural theology, for example? Well, there's a lot of questions that you're packing into one question there. Uh, first of all, 
let's just talk for a moment about natural theology. And I, I, although, of course, this is something that philosophers have always made a big thing of, um, you have to understand that there's a very strong Christian tradition, uh, particularly amongst Protestants, less of among the English, that are not very keen on natural theology. And people like Kierkegaard, and of course in the last century, Karl Barth, wanted to say that there's been altogether too much emphasis on proving the existence of God and not enough emphasis on accepting God through faith. And of course, there's a lot of biblical evidence to suggest that faith is where we should go. I mean, the story of Thomas, that Thomas said, show me your you know, the marks on your hands. And Jesus said, well, here you are, here are the marks, and now you believe. But much better to have believed if you didn't have to have that proof. And even, I mean, if you look at the great theologians that we associate with natural theology, particularly Aquinas, Aquinas is quite clear on this, that revealed theology is in many respects much more important than natural theology, that natural theology can help us understand but it must never be the ultimate proof for the existence of God. Now, in England, I think it became that very much because of the of the uh, 16th century and the so-called Elizabethan settlement, when England was defining itself against the Catholic Church on the one hand and the threat of Spain on the one hand, and the Protestants, particularly the Calvinists, on the other hand, was trying to find what the English call a via media, and natural theology became very important, through, particularly through people like Archdeacon Paley. And of course, it still is today with theologians like uh, Richard Swinburne and others like that. But as I say, so as I say, at one level, I want to be very careful about at least, I'm not a believer anymore, but if I were a believer, I would want to say Thomas Henry Newman, the great uh, theologian in England who be went to the Catholic Church and became a cardinal, said, I believe in design because I believe in God. I do not believe in God because I believe in design. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. He said, I believe in design. I look at the eye and I see, yes, the miraculous workings of the eye. He wasn't a creationist because I believe in God. I don't look at the eye and say, ah, that proves God to me. Because as soon as you get into that, you get into all sorts of issues like, well, what about the inverted retina? Doesn't that mean God didn't do a very good job? And of course, Newman wants to say, you know, that's got nothing to do with Jesus dying on the cross for my salvation. That's, you know, that couldn't, that's not only irrelevant, it's, you know, it's heretical, it's irreligious. I look at the eye, I look at Richard Lopez, and I say, or Ricardo Lopez, and I say, yeah, what a wonderful thing. Thank you, God, for being, for the wonder of creating beings like this. I, I worship you, God, you are so great. I don't look at Ricardo Lopez and say, oh my God, God must exist. Just look at that. You know, how could, how could Ricardo Lopez exist and not be a, an all-loving God who was prepared to die on the cross for my salvation? You know, Newman says, you know, that's ludicrous. That's just stupid. So I've always, I feel very strongly that. So the way I would approach, say, something like evolution, if I were religious, is I would say, 
as far as I'm concerned, and I think an awful lot of, of Christians, moderate Christians today, would say this is exactly the position we take, that if we become evolutionists, we do it out of the glory of God to explore his wonderful creation, not to prove that he exists to us. We know he exists. Now let us understand this wonderful world that he made for us, that it's just as much of, of our Christian duty as to love our neighbors, as to explore this world in which we live, the, world, the wonderful world that God created. In, in as much as we do this, we, we glorify God and we testify to his greatness. So as I say, my position, and I think an awful lot of this would be very much the position of an awful lot of of mainstream philosophers, or not philosophers, theologians, would be very much that sort of position. I, I suspect that if you spoke to the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury or, you know, some of the more, you know, cardinals that you would respect in, in, um, in Portugal or, or, or others, that that's very much the kind of position that they would say is our position. It's, it's, it's not, it's not, as far as we're concerned, this is not a fight. <laughs> this is not a fight. Now, of course, what you've got, of course, are the more extreme atheists and the more extreme uh, Christians, fundamentalists, who, as so often, are back to back on this, that extremists of both sides are usually so much more alike. I mean, one thinks of Marxists and National Socialists, both of whom want to take people and re-educate them and make them do things. And I mean, you think about Stalin and Hitler. And the, I mean, although at one level, they've got completely diametrically opposed philosophies, at another level, they're back to back on how they're treating people. I mean, it's amazing. You know, they're completely back to back on wanting to run people's lives and make it as unpleasant as they can for people who don't fit in. And, you know, often they're persecuting exactly the same people, Jews and homosexuals and, and all of these sorts of things. So it's, it's fascinating. So, as I say, I see an awful lot of the tension coming either from people like Richard Dawkins, who seem to think that the only way you can prove God is through the, the eye or the hand. Uh, and uh, people like uh, Henry Morris or Dwayne Gish or other, you know, Bill Dembski or others like that, who seem to think the only way, you know, Franklin Graham, the only way you can prove God is through the hand or the eye. And so what I want to say is, yeah, as soon as you start to get into these issues, then you're going to find conflicts. I mean, you're going to find conflicts I mean, about was, was there Noah's flood or not? And you're going to spend an awful lot of time arguing about Noah's flood. Whereas, you know, your average Christian would want to say Noah's flood, if anything, it's not about, you know, waterworks. It's not about rain. It's much more. Think of the story. People are doing bad, so God wipes them all out, except for Noah and his family. And what happens at the end of the story? Noah gets pissed drunk and his kid laughs at him. Sin is still there. I see Noah's flood as a wonderful story about the stupidity of simplistic solutions. That simplistic solutions like Bear, Blair and Bush marching into, into Iraq don't work. They just don't work. You know, simplistic solutions just don't work. 
And I see Noah's flood as a remarkable metaphor, if you like, for that. I mean, take the story of Ruth and, and Naomi. Does this is this really about some women way back in ancient Egypt, ancient Israel? I don't think it is. I think it's much more about devotion, about the importance of strangers in your midst. Don't forget, you know, Ruth was a Moabite. She's the great grandmother of King David. I mean, you know, it's a wonderful story about devotion, about love, about about strangers coming into our midst and becoming part of us. I mean, these are wonderful stories, but don't take them as, you know, accounts of what great-grandmother did, because that's to misread them. Now, I think most Christians today, you know, moderate Christians, whether they be Catholic or Protestant or whatever, would say, yeah, this is absolutely and completely the way that we want to read it. It doesn't mean to say that Jesus didn't die for us, whether or not there was a, an actual resurrection, at a certain level, is in, is just doesn't really matter. I mean, the example I always like to take is is uh, is, is is Dunkirk in May 1940, when the English army managed to escape from Hitler and came back to England. That weekend, the Channel, which is usually like this, was like this. Now. You know, it was a miracle. I grew up with everybody saying Dunkirk was a miracle. That weekend, the channel was so calm that it was possible for even the smallest ships to go over to France and rescue British soldiers who then came back, who then reconstituted the British army so they could go back and fight Hitler. It was a miracle. Now, did God intervene and say, okay, I'm going to change the weather? Or was it part of the natural laws? That's so totally irrelevant. What matters is the meaning. So as I say, I personally, and I think I would speak for an awful lot of Christians on this, would say all of this blow up about evolution and religion is entirely you know, a false thing. Now, one can see why it happens. Altogether, too many evolutionists make a religion out of their science, all this stuff about progress and, and all of that sort of stuff. And there's no question that people like Richard Dawkins are busy into doing that. No wonder Christians get pissed off. I mean, you know, when he writes these books, you know, running every, you know, when he says bringing a child up as a Christian as a form of child abuse. Yeah, I mean, it's so stupid. Yes. The Catholic Church and child abuse has a terrible record. But I grew up as a Quaker. And, you know, a more loving and kindly and important group of people in my life, it would be hard to imagine. So, you know, this black or white is, you know, it's what Noah's ark is. It's simplistic. It's not grown up. There you go. <laughs> No, I, oh, completely, I, I, I completely agree with you, yeah, and I would want to also ask you about this. Don't you think that another of the problems here is the fact that, so, um, you talked about the stories from the Bible, for example, and I guess that what you were going to say there was that we can extract some moral value from... No, but not just, yes! 
Well, yes, but I don't want to say it's like Stephen Jay Gould said, it's just a moral story, because it's not. I mean, I think for Christians, it's a very real story. It's not one I accept. I don't have faith about it, but I don't think Christians think it's just a moral story. I think they do believe in a creator God. They do believe in a God who cares for us. I think they do believe in a God who has a special place for humans. They don't necessarily think that it excludes all other all of the living things. And I think an awful lot of Christians today would say, if heaven doesn't include the animals, I don't want much to do with heaven. I mean, heaven without being filled with the glory of creation, for me, I mean, if heaven is just sitting on a, on a, you know, on a cloud playing my harp, looking at other humans, I, that's pretty boring. I mean, if heaven would never let me go for a walk with one of my dogs, you know, that wouldn't be heaven for me. Or if heaven wouldn't be, you know, going out and enjoying and saying, oh, my God. You know, this morning, I, I always walk my dogs first thing in the morning and going out there into the countryside and just being able to enjoy the creation. If heaven doesn't let me do that at some level, it wouldn't be heaven. So I don't see these things as as either ors, but at the same time, clearly, if you are a Christian and you do believe that at some level God did come back, whether or not he came to atone for your sins or whether he came to, you know, to set an example, which is what I grew up with, not so much that God is going to wash away your sins, but that God is an example of how we should all behave. And that at some level, there's the promise that God is with us all the time, that he's always with us. However bad it is, we're not alone. That God is there, you know, our friend, and if we're suffering, our fellow sufferer. I mean, I think Christians believe that, and I think it's more than just morality. I think it's a, you know, to use a philosophy term, I think it's an ontological claim. So I, I'm not dissing that at all, but of course, as I want to say, I think that this is a matter of faith. So the fact that I don't have it is not something which I immediately want to get into an argument about and say, give me the proof, because I don't think it works that way. You see, that's the thing. I don't want to say to a fellow Christian, well, I think you're wrong. Prove to me that God is with you now, because they're going to say to me, you know, it's not something that I prove. It's something I live with. And I'm sorry that you don't live with it. And uh, I'm not quite sure why, because you don't seem to me necessarily a bad person. But somehow you've not been blessed in the way that I have. But, you know, we all know that this is a mysterious world and not everybody gets everything. Maybe God is maybe God is testing you. God doesn't want you to have that faith. God wants you to have to work it out for yourself. And I like to think I do. I think I care about my students or I think intellectual things. I think it's worth my time talking to you to try to explain some of these sorts of things. I mean, uh, so maybe that's, I mean, a, a Christian might say, well, that's okay. That's what God's doing. He's not giving you the faith, but he's, he's testing you and expecting you to, to do this. It's okay. I mean, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means, you know, sometimes some God makes some people crippled. Uh, why does he do that? That's God's decision, not ours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, but I guess that uh, I was trying to move the conversation about the schism, let's say, between religion and science 
to morality because I mean well uh, I just don't you see again obviously some Christians are going to have different moral standards from me I mean take something like abortion I don't I personally I don't think there's much biblical evidence for it I certainly don't think there's any scientific evidence about it and so you know personally I mean, I don't want somebody who's 36 weeks pregnant having an abortion, but it seems to me, you know, a slam dunk if somebody at the age of 20 weeks discovers that their baby is genetically handicapped, let's say some awful disease like Huntington's career, I would say the morally good thing to do is to have an abortion. So uh, and clearly I'm going to differ from somebody who says, well, biblically, you know, it's just against me. So clearly there's going to be differences there. After that, I'm not, you know, I really wonder sometimes what differences there would be. I mean, some Christians would say that we have equal obligations to every human being everywhere. Well, but not all Christians would say that because <clears throat> there's certainly bi biblical evidence to say, suggest that you've got special obligations to your children. And I think most of us would say this. I mean, for instance, if somebody said to me, oh, that Ricardo Lopez, you know, he's a real saint. He gives all his money to the Salvation Army or something like that. And I say, well, what about those 15 children? Oh, well, that's really tough on them. They never have shoes, you know, and they're never the, the clothing. They're always cold in the winter. But, oh, Ricardo Lopez, he's such a wonderful man. He gives all his money away to starving Africans. I wouldn't say Ricardo Lopez is a great guy. I'd say Ricardo Lopez is a total asshole. He's trying to get into heaven on the backs or the feet of his 15 children. He's got, if he's going to have 15 children, then he's got obligations to those 15 children that he doesn't have to any other 15 children on this earth. Doesn't mean to say he doesn't have any obligation to anybody else. But, you know, charity begins at home. Now, you know, I would say that's the Christian position. I would say that's the Darwinian position. I mean, so as I said, I, you know, I mean, of course, where it gets interesting, and I've been writing about this, is the whole question of war and to what extent is the, you know, what's the Christian position on war? But, you know, if you don't know, I can tell you very obviously, Christians are bitterly dis divided. Some, like the Quakers, are pacifists. They say you should never find others. Uh, like, let's say, the, the, the Catholics, say, no, just war theory says there are some things you should not do. Obliteration bombing, you should not bomb civilians. However, there are times when it is right and proper to take up arms. And it, it was right and proper to fight Hitler. It was not right to bomb Dresden, but it was certainly right to fight, let us say, Hitler in the, in the desert or Hitler... Uh, at the Battle of the Bulge or something like that. You are fighting evil and you are doing the Christian thing in doing this. So, And I don't see that an evolutionist would necessarily differ on this. Some evolutionists, certainly some, you know, atheists like Bertrand Russell have been out and out pacifists. At least he was about the First World War. He was less so about the Second World War. But certainly somebody like Russell was a was a you know pacifist right down the line, although he was not a Christian on the, the question of the First World War. So, as I say, morally, I'm not altogether sure. That, I mean, the point is, I think that more, I I see an awful lot. I mean, the the Catholic position on morality is natural law theory. It says you should do what God wants, but God doesn't want the arbitrary. God wants us to have sexual intercourse with our fellow humans, 
rather than with gorillas, because it's natural to do that. And so I would say, surely that's exactly what an evolutionist thinks. Where it gets interesting is, say, something like homosexuality. And of course, the Catholic Church has always said that homosexuality is unnatural. And of course, I think somebody like Darwin would have said exactly the same. But now, of course, we're starting to think that maybe alternative sexual strategies is not necessarily unnatural, that they're alternative sexual strategies. And it seems to me that a natural law theorist in the Catholic tradition could, and in fact should say, well, you know, if being homosexual can be natural, then, you know, that's God's decision, not ours. So, as I say, I personally see a lot less tension between Christian thinking and um, uh, and uh, Darwinian thinking. You know, apart from anything else, Darwin grew up as a, as a Christian. So I don't expect to see Darwin suddenly changing completely. I mean, maybe one thing is Darwinians do have more respect for people who are prepared to have a go. I mean, the, the Bible says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think, by and large, Darwinians would say, nah, well, being meek, yes, but basically you should have a crack at it. But of course, most Christians think that too. I mean, let's take St. Paul. St. Paul wasn't very meek when it, actually, Jesus wasn't very meek when it came down to the money changers. I mean, meek, yes, but, you know, you think of some of the great saints, and, you know, they were not only not meek, but we, we praise them because they had the guts to get up and do something about it. They were prepared to say, this is awful. You know, we can't let this happen. St. Vincent de Paul or people like that who said, this is just awful. We've got to do something about it. And they did. And that's not meek. That's Christian. Mm -hmm. Okay, so could we, could we summarize all of what you just said in the following way that what really matters is the moral beliefs that people hold and on the basis of which they behave toward other people and not really where they might emanate from well i suppose i would but at the same time i don't want to i, I as long as you don't put me in the position of saying then that one's religious beliefs are unimportant because i don't think that i mean i think for me it's a very important part of my existential nature that I'm an agnostic. I mean, I don't feel that being an agnostic is just something, you know, like being, you know, male or being, um, you know, being 78 or whatever it is. It's, you know, just these things happen. Um, for me, being an agnostic is a very important, as it were, existential part of what I am. And I would certainly want to say that the Christians I know, that for them being a Christian isn't just something which goes along with it, that for being, them being a Christian is, again, something very important for them. So don't get me into the position of saying, well, what you believe is not important. That said, obviously, I do want to say that I see a great deal of overlap particularly amongst those of us who, let's say those of us take these things seriously. I mean, obviously there's not much overlap between me and Donald Trump, but I would say 
whatever Trump's religious beliefs are, there's a lot, a much wider gap between me and Trump on his religious beliefs than there is between me and Pope, Pope Francis. That although Pope Francis has a whole, you know, religious system that he believes in, which I don't have, I would say in many respects, Pope Francis and I are in many respects very close in, in, in important respects as human beings in a way that I don't think either of us are, say, with respect to Donald Trump, which, of course, then I think does play out in our moral commitments as well. So, that you know, as I say, please don't take me as saying your religious beliefs are unimportant because they're not. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. I, as I say, being for me, being a, 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 an agnostic is a tremendously important existential choice that I make pretty much on a daily basis, uh, as I'm sure this is the same for Pope Francis. Uh, the, you know, as my friends tell me, faith is not something you have. It's something you have to live. That's something you have to commit yourself to on a daily basis. And goodness, I understand that so completely. Whereas, as I say, it's so clear that this is not the case with somebody like Trump, for whom religion, like everything else, is just a, a tool, you know, to his own ego gratification. And, uh, yeah, so we're so very different there. So, yeah, so I think that's a good way to put it. So, yes, of course, I think that there are great similarities. But as I say, I would protest strongly in saying that, therefore, that shows that your existential or your religious commitment is unimportant, because if anything, it's more important. Okay, very well. So, Dr. Roos, we've already done almost two hours here. We have. <laughs> yeah. And it's time, and it's time for you to go and feed those 15 children. <laughs> your, wives, your wives will be wondering where you are. Oh, my God, this is going to be on record, I guess. I know. <laughs> I'm hoping that I'm going to embarrass you amongst all your friends and everybody else for the rest of your life, that every time you walk into a room, there's going to be laughter and you will turn bright red. <laughs> yes, that's for sure, and particularly because it came from you, Dr. Roos, because you're a very, em you're <laughs> well, a very eminent you're, person. You'll be so. one with my children. My children, my children <laughs> feel very much the same way about me as you're going to feel. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very well. Okay, so Dr. Roos, it was a very uh, entertaining conversation and a very informative well, one as well. So. I, I want to say the same to you, Ricardo. I mean, I, I am teasing you, but at the same time, I'm teasing you because we are fellow human beings. And I want to, I'm not an important person and you're not or whatever. I want to I think it's so important in this life, and that, as I say, this is part of my existential commitment to this life, is that we're fellow humans on this planet for a very short while, and it's a gift, and we have to make of it what we can. And if we spend our time being toffee-nosed to others and looking down on them and that sort of thing, we're not going to get very far. Okay, okay. so... Okay, so let's wrap this up with that very good message. Okay. And Dr. Ruse, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Okay. <laughs> Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. 
And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.